This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is made possible by HMH Vices. Since 1975, HMH Vices have been giving tires dependable service and quality. Made in Maine, USA, all HMH Vices and tools are guaranteed for life. The HMH Vice has an ultra-smooth 360-degree rotary action and an exclusive quick-change jaw feature that allows you to tie from size 32 to 6 aught. In 1992, HMH was instrumental in popularizing tube flies with their tube fly tool. This tool fits into any vise, making it easy for tires to tie on tubes with only a minimal investment. HMH offers a complete selection of fly tying tubes, including aluminum, copper, poly, and rigid tubes for any species, water depth, or temperature. Their tube converter tool converts an HMH vise into an incredible inline rotary tube vise. With a vice for all budgets, you're bound to find something that fits your needs at www.hmhvices.com. Tom Perrow is the man behind Wild River Press, a publishing house that has produced some of the best fishing books of our time. Tom is an avid steelhead angler who lives in Washington State, so naturally when I was there a couple of summers ago, I simply had to meet up with him. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss the magazine world, struggles as a publisher, and catch and release fishing. I was born in Fall River, Massachusetts, home of cotton mills, the American Civil War and into the 20th century. I grew up in a nearby industrial town called Taunton, Massachusetts, or as the locals pronounce it, Tanton. Tanton, huh? Tanton. Okay. It's about 15, 20 minutes 
drive from the Rhode Island border. Okay. Mm. Do you do your parents fish at all? Uh, well, bo- both my parents are, are uh, deceased. My father died when I was 10 years old. Oh, no, that's really young. And um, and my mother just died several years ago at age 92. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that the photo of her down there by your desk? Yes. Um, so my father did fish, actually, uh, in local ponds and rivers in uh, southeastern Massachusetts, where I grew up, mainly for bass and pickerel and hornpout, which is a, sort of a catfish. And I remember his uh, trying to get me to, to fish, and he'd always turn to my mother and say, that damn kid will never be a fisherman. What? Why? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I guess <laughs> I was six years old or whatever, and I was distracted, you know, running around. I was supposed to watch the float, you know, watch the little red and white bobber. And I was six years old. I wanted to go and touch things and catch salamanders and uh, and all that, yeah. You wanted to be a little boy. Right, right, right. So then what happens? Did you fish throughout high school? I did. That's actually where I, I caught the, not only fishing, but also hunting. And those times, uh, um, it, unlike today, I think those of us who fished in the spring and summer also hunted in the fall. It, it was kind of a package deal. You were mm-hmm. not just an angler, you were a outdoors person a sportsman but yeah it, it really was when i was in when i was a teenager and in high school that i really caught the bug for for fly fishing i actually tied flies before i caught a fish on a fly not very well but i did i did tie flies and uh, w- was uh, absorbed in that for well probably a good year or so which is quite a long time before i finally c- began to catch uh, bluegill and sunfish on on flies. Where, where I grew up, there really weren't many trout streams. I learned later that there were some little tiny headwater brooks where there were native brook trout, but I didn't know that at the time. When did you come over to the West Coast? Because we're in Oregon right now. I moved to I moved from Massachusetts to Oregon in 1984 when I was 30 years old. Oh, you were 30. Did, what did you take in college? I'm assuming you went to Journalism. university. That's not a surprise. And we'll go into that later for any mm. of my listeners who may not know or may not be familiar with your work. Okay, so you obviously finished your degree. Yes. And were you single at the time? Like yes. Married or anything yes, like I that? Yes, wa- I was single at the time and should have stayed so for a number of years thereafter. But okay. uh, <laughs> I, I uh, um, wasn't uh, cautious enough and, and that in the relationship department and dove in headfirst and that didn't last very many years. But shortly after I graduated, I, uh, I was offered the job as editor of Trout Magazine. I was 23 years old. Holy, that's really young to be offered an, yeah, ed- an editor yeah, job. Yeah, and it, uh, I it, well, the magazine wasn't what it is now. I never would have been capable of of doing the job, even even to to, to edit the magazine that I turned it into. But I, you know, I kind of grew with it and it with me. So it was it was basically the opportunity in my lifetime. And how did that come to be? Did you apply for it, or did they find you? Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a story, as all things are, I suppose. I was a volunteer as a teenager in the organization Trout Unlimited. I was the fir- the youngest chapter president in the organization's history. I started my own chapter, the Southeastern Massachusetts chapter of Trout Unlimited, when I was eighteen. So I was involved as a volunteer in the region, in the New England region. Went to meetings, etc. Long story short, uh, one of the uh, individuals who with whom I associated, a slightly older guy, called me up one day and he said that the editor at the time of, of Trout Magazine was resigning, but that the president, a volunteer president, was a, a, a bit of a, an oddball character and didn't tell anybody and wasn't going to tell anybody until a spring meeting six months 
Hence. And so my friend from Vermont said, uh, this is a real opportunity for you. He knew that you know, I, I was doing some outdoor writing and aspired to get into the field professionally. And, and I said, well, what, you know, what, what should I do? And he said, I'd put together a proposal if I were you. And he said, I'll, I'll, I know a bunch of key people. He was on the National Board of Directors at the time. Keep in mind that TU was a very small organization at that time. Mm-hmm. And I think I was staff member number five, and I think there's like 150 staff members now right. or something. But uh, yeah, so I, I bought a plane ticket to Denver in the spring of 1977. It was the first commercial flight I'd ever been on, at least across the country. And showed up prepared to make a presentation to uh, to this august board of directors, including the uh, chairman of the board of American Motors. And unfortunately, the 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 boys took me out for margaritas the night before, Ooh. and uh, I wasn't much of a drinker at that time anyway. And it was a mile high, so I didn't get much sleep that that night. But I evidently performed sufficiently enough that uh, there I was giving my pitch, and uh, the board voted right in front of me and I walked away as as Ezra Trout magazine my 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 mother picked me up at Logan Airport in Boston and uh said well did you get it and I said of course I did <laughs> and, and three months later found myself behind the wheel of a rented car in Billings Montana driving through the big sky and living the dream so how did you end up here then, all, all the way on the West? Um, steelhead. Okay, so explain how that came to be. Well, by that time, uh, by, by the mid-80s, I had been, I, I, this was a full-time job, by the way. It was a very modest full-time job with a minimal salary, but nevertheless, I was, that, that was part of what I created for myself, was the, the first full-time editor of Trout Magazine. So, you know, I essentially was wherever the magazine, I mean, the magazine was wherever I was, mm-hmm. and vice versa, I suppose. And so I convinced, the, the organization was in a, in a big growth phase, and many of us, uh, it was a very small staff, and many of us wore several hats at once out of necessity. And so, for example, I wrote the, uh, I wrote the membership development plan in the late 90s that helped propel the organization from 14,000 members to 50,000 members. And uh, I'm not claiming I made that happen, but I was the architect of the plan. Yeah. So I did a lot of different things. And uh, it's like a small business. You have to, right? Uh, and, and that's what we were. We were in the business of trout and salmon conservation, but we, were, we needed to get members and all. So we all, many of us did different things. And I convinced the powers that be in the, the mid-'80s that if I were on the West Coast, that I'd be a lot closer to California where we... The organization had aspirations to grow, and then I could drive down there and start chapters, et cetera, et cetera. So, Crafty. So I, uh, I was there on temporary assignment, and here I am. Yeah, it wasn't so temporary, was it? So where do you go from Trout Magazine? I, I edited Trout for 16 years. Oh, wow, um, that's a long time. And uh, during the course of that, I twice I won the Magazine of the Year Award from the Natural Resources Council of America. I beat out... Audubon, Sierra, and we were just a little, little rinky dink, you know, the little caboose that could or whatever. So I was, you know, pretty proud of that, and 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 the, and the magazine was very well regarded. A new regime took over. A lawyer took over the organization in the early 1990s, fired all the senior staff, and downgraded the magazine on purpose. Now, in recent years, it's come back into its own. Glory, I think. I think it's an excellent magazine. In fact, I just wrote an article about steelhead in the Salmon River 
last year for for trout so that was the end of my tenure there um it was kind of it was a fantasy job it uh, i learned everything i knew in those early years from actually doing it learn how to take pictures learn how to interview people learn how to do stories all that so no complaints here but it was a bit of a shock when one day you wake up and said you know nice job kid but you know here's the door so i suddenly found myself that was in 92 1992 i suddenly found myself with uh with no job and, and you're 30 i'm just doing the math if you're 23 when you got the job <clears throat> 16 you were 39 when all this went down i suppose so yeah i don't know that's an interesting time in your life to yeah, be starting new right so uh i um a friend and i uh retired navy captain peter Sovrel. pete and i had become friends during the the late 80s and the various conservation wars and steelhead wars and everything I was still living in Bend at the time and when I was fired and uh, from, from TU. And so we got together and formed the Wild Salmon Center. And basically, it was going to be my job. Uh, it never became my job, and it's a good thing it didn't probably because yeah. the people who have run it in, in years since are far more capable administrators than I ever would have been. But that's, that's actually the, the, the sort of root origin of, of that organization. And because we had no real track record, uh, we couldn't raise any money. So it's, you know, the chicken-egg situation. And I had to figure out a way, you know, I was not born with a silver spoon in mouth by any means, so I had to figure out a way to scramble and survive. And so with the help of, notably, of, of Pete and uh, Jimmy and Lone, who uh, owns and has for many years the famous Steamboat Inn on the North Umpqua River, yeah, yeah. those two fellows in particular were really instrumental in helping me raise capital to start my own magazine, Wild Steelhead and Atlantic Salmon, which uh, I spent 1993 assembling. You mentioned the Miramichi a short while ago. I spent a couple of weeks on the Miramichi during that summer and interviewed Ted Williams, for example, a baseball player. And uh, he looked at me at one point and he said, uh, you know, I don't like writers, just big voice. And... He said things just to get a reaction to see what you'd say. And I said, yes, Ted, but I fish. Yeah. <laughs> what was his response? <laughs> I forgot exactly. But so, so the year following, 1994, we came out with our inaugural issue of, of Wild Steelhead. And that lasted in several iterations for, I don't know, half a dozen years or so. And then we just couldn't couldn't keep the momentum going. There just weren't enough avid steelheaders and salmon fishermen to keep it going and those who were out there a lot of them wouldn't wouldn't subscribe or wouldn't renew and as you know better than anybody it's an ornery bunch Mm, and yeah and uh so uh long story short we morphed the magazine into uh fish and fly and one of the uh, uh, primary uh investors a fellow named jim ratzlaff also from oregon he uh, was the principal investor in that new venture. And so I did that for, uh, again, another five or six years or so. And then the internet sort of, you know, overtook everything. And print was in the rearview mirror. It became more and more difficult to sell advertising. I found myself at one point, I, I, I didn't just didn't like my job anymore. I didn't like my work. I was spending the vast majority of my time chasing advertising, the creative aspect that that I love so much, uh, the photography, the writing, the interviewing, 
all that was had almost become an afterthought. At, at one point, I actually became emotionally and physically ill. And so uh, at that point, a company in a magazine publishing company in Florida actually uh, stepped in and, um, and, and bought the magazine from, from Mr. Ratzlaff and hired me. Oh. And uh, increased my salary and gave me a uh, a big travel budget and beyond what I had had before. So I I was in great shape. But I knew that wasn't going to last when I flew to Florida, met with the uh, the owner of that particular publishing company, and over dinner at a very exclusive country club, actually the, the Tiger Woods Country Club, where that infamous incident occurred years later. Uh, over over dinner at at this elite country club where there were more servers than there were people in the restaurant, uh, the owner, uh, with great enthusiasm, told me that I needed to start thinking big. What does that mean? And exactly? well, he gave me a specific example that indicated to me that I'd better spend my travel budget while I still was there because this this gig was not going to was not long for this world. Uh, his name was Rance, old Chicago money, and he said. Uh, he said, and remember, this is 2005. Okay. And he said, you need to mount a trout fishing expedition to Afghanistan. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> he said, you need to mount a trout fishing expedition to Afghanistan. Really excite people. I said, um, I remember uh, leaning over my martini and, I, and uh, taking a, a long gulp of air and saying, um, Rance, uh, you're an expert at all this, but a couple things, a couple problems with that. A, it would probably exhaust my entire $30,000 travel budget, and B, I don't want to die. <laughs> you know, that little thing. Right. <laughs> so how long did that gig with that rant Two and a half last? years. Two, Two and a half, half years. years, and then uh, the one of my colleagues at that operation, the editor of Golf Week magazine, uh, in response to the Tiger Wood incidents incident put a noose on the cover of Golf Week magazine. An actual noose. An actual noose. I have a copy downstairs. Whoa, golfing sounds oh, like it's yeah. quite controversial. And, well, it was all to do with this Tiger Wood thing, yeah. and uh, so that that sent that that whole organization into a tailspin, and a bunch of people got fired, and uh, advertise major advertisers pulled out of out of their publication and you know when the, these golf club companies at that time anyway you know were considerably larger than fishing rod companies yeah so you lose a million dollars in advertising from one of those as they did as a result of that and everybody it ripples down the line everybody gets screwed so that was the end of that and mm-hmm. uh so once again i found myself looking you know on the outside with you know looking for something to do and uh, I just didn't, ha- I had done magazine work for, at that time, what, 30 years? More, longer than that, actually, because I, before Trout Magazine, I had actually edited a small fly tying magazine, oh. part-time, uh, when I was in school. But, so 30 years worth of, of magazine work, and I was just, I was burnt out. I was just tired of it. I had done everything I could hope to do creatively. And again, with the internet and everything else, it was just, uh, I, 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 I saw no no happy future uh, in in that work. So I started Wild River Press and started publishing books and uh, on high end books on fishing and hunting, and at least was rid of the pesky advertisers. 
Yeah. Well, what's your biggest obstacle when you're a publishing house? <laughs> the writers. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, biggest obstacle. Getting people to buy the books, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's pretty much that's your biggest challenge, whether you're Random House or Joe Blow, you know, publishing out of his garage. Yeah. I mean, you've got you to gotta make a product that, that, that's exceptional and that people want to buy and, and sell it to them. Well, before we go into the book world, what about some of your most successful books? See, I'm in your house right now, and you have got awards everywhere. And uh, a lot of the awards I see are, are, are definitely for books I've read. Right. Would you mind telling my listener your top five books? Sure. Um, t- top five in terms of sales? Sure. Um, okay. Uh, so probably the, uh, the most successful book that I've published, and I've done this now for 10 years or so, the most successful book uh, is A Passion for Steelhead by Duck Hogan. We've been through three printings of that. In fact, we're almost out of the third printing. And uh, I just talked with Deck a few days ago, and we're going to do a 10th anniversary edition next oh, cool. year, updated, cool. etc. And probably then next on the list would be A Passion for Tarpon by Andy Mill, a well-known Olympic skier. In fact, I just, an hour before you walked in, I got a phone call from a guy from Florida who ordered a case of eight copies of that book uh, that he wants to give to friends who are going to Cuba with him this fall. I encourage sales of cases of books because bribery works. <laughs> and uh, it pays my bills. Um, so then any number of other books, probably Atlantic Salmon Magic, the Topher Brown book. And you one know, of my you, favorites. You know Topher. Yeah. Um, and Dex, one of my favorites too. I haven't read Andy's book yet, but I will do that. Then a couple of years ago, I came out with my first hunting book called A Passion for Grouse. And that was more of an anthology. And we won several national awards for that, and that's done very well. So, yeah, those those are, and there, there have been several others that uh, that have done okay, but those are sort of my main um, my main titles, I suppose. How did the Sean Gallagher book do? Um, yeah, I, I pardon me, I, excuse me, Sean, if you're listening to this, I, I'm negligent in mentioning the Gallagher book. The Gallagher book uh, uh, has done reasonably well, um, not as well as the Hogan book in terms of numbers, simply because the Hogan book is a how-to book. Yeah, absolutely. And how-to books in fishing and hunting traditionally and forever and ever you know, have always sold better. So the Gallagher book is more of a, as you know, is more of a storytelling exercise and uh, more uh, the long-form interviews and all that. So uh, the Gallagher book has done reasonably well uh, for, for what it is, and considering the fact that it demands a lot of, of the reader and that, uh, you know, it's a $150 book with two volumes. and mm, It's a beautiful book. Uh, thank you. you know, so I think, I mean, artistically, it was one of my, my, my best realized books, I think. And, and what I mean by that is when, you, you know, you have a you have a vision of some sort, not to get too grandiose about it, but you do have to have some idea where you're going to take the product and what you want it to look like and what the form of it should be and what it says and and all that. And I think we came pretty close to nailing that. Uh, some, some of the others, uh, and I won't mention any names, were a bit more of a bootstrap operation yeah. <laughs> to get them out, and, uh, involving you know divorces and people moving and you know, little stuff like that. Is it frustrating to you as a writer and as a publisher to see how to's be so much more successful than things that maybe hold a little more, you know, historical value to them? I wouldn't say frustrating. Um, 
it, you know, it may be disappointing to some extent because the books that last are the books that tell stories yeah. and that, that, that document tradition and offer, I think, contemporary anglers and shooters a sense of their own past. Those are the books that last. And so what, you know, what I try to do is I try to, even with my how-to books, and, and one could say that, the, for example, the Andy Mill Tarpon book, which has been quite, quite successful for us, that's a good example. I, I've learned over the years to sneak in some of that stuff. So uh, I saw a bit of it in Deck's book. Indeed, yeah. And, and had we done that again, uh, or rather had, had I uh, had that to do over again, I would have been a little more daring in, in that respect. But so, so no, it doesn't frustrate me. It's just a, a reality. Um, the people who, people who buy books, uh, at least historically, that's all changing radically with the internet and iPhones and everything else. But historically, the people who have bought books, at least in the fishing and hunting genre, generally do it because they want to learn something. They want to know what Andy Mill knows about tarpon. And if you can get that information free on the internet or in any other way why pay for it and that's essentially that's what all publishers small and large are are battling these days to the average person especially the average young person you know it's a free world out there and if you can't google it instantly it doesn't exist to, in their their world i suppose i should have seen this coming years ago when people started referring to editorial as content what do you what do you mean that's the new jargon for you know we for years and years in journalism it's we call it editorial, editorial it was yeah. copy it was it was the the written word well that's to, what i call it what are people calling well, it now yeah you're an old soul to, to, to today's generation to today's internet generation it's content it's treated as uh uh, just as a filler uh, as filler or or something to attract people so I, I, it's just a revealing little tidbit that doesn't mean anything, but I always, I notice that. And it, it's, it's, it, it's a copy or editorial, you know, and it'll always be that in my world. Well, let's talk a little bit about publishing. So are you out of magazines now entirely? I mean, obviously uh, you still contribute, but as far as... I being... actually am the, I, I, I am from any point of view having to make a living at it or running anything. Indeed, I have been for... The one lingering thing from that Florida publishing company is that a, a pal of the owners operated a uh, uh, an aviation magazine, actually a series of them, and convinced me to, as a favor to the, this the guy who bought Fish and Fly and and eventually uh, stopped publishing it. I started writing a column called Outdoor Adventures for a, a magazine called Business Jet Traveler, and I still do that. I've done that now for. 10 years. It's a bi-monthly magazine and most of the issues carry my column. It's a brief piece and I've covered everything from hot air ballooning to fishing obviously and, and some hunting and a bunch of stuff that in a million years I'd never do. <laughs> you still won't do any of that stuff even though you're writing about it? Um, well, no, I never claimed to have done it necessarily. I mean, I don't lie about it, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to be on some kind of a cable racing through the North Carolina mountain canopy. Uh, that's not happening. You maybe, look like an athletic guy, well, though. Maybe, you don't look your age. Well, maybe when I, well, maybe when I was 12, I would have done it. But, um, 
that Tommy no longer exists. Okay, got it, got it, got it. That's fair. I'll, I'll let you get away with that. So because you are so, I'm going to go ahead and say outspoken uh, in one way or another, I would be curious to hear your take on the whole print is dead statement. Do you believe print is dead? Um, not at all, and, and, uh, and, and really never will be, but it is changing. Books are becoming more things to collect, things to display. I read an article in the New York Times a couple of years ago where there are actual uh, interior designers who, uh, as part of their repertoire, depending on who you are and the image you're trying to project uh, in Manhattan, will prescribe certain stacks of certain titles of books that should be displayed in such a way that, for example, social photographers, society photographers coming in, taking pictures of uh, a family or couples or whatever, will see the right titles mm-hmm. uh, in, in the image. Laughable, yes, but that's, that is, is sort of the, an indication of where things are going to a, to a degree. Again, it gets back to the old content business and, and what one is looking for. I belong to several professional publishing associations, so I'm deluged with email information and actually some print newsletters still, and not not fuss dinosaurs still around to read that stuff. And um, actually, a couple of years ago, there was an uptick in the sale of, of printed books uh, that coincided with a fairly dramatic decline in ebooks. So I think, you know, to answer your question, um, I think it's kind of stabilized. I think that from here on in, run-of-the-mill books, novels, for example, are definitely uh, the purview of more educated people, and in particular women, and the statistics back this up. Even with my fishing and hunting books, from approximately mid-November through Christmas, well more than half of my sales are to women. They buy them as, as, as gifts. And um, a, a literate, educated woman will look at one of my big, colorful books and, and won't even, $100, sure. Her husband, boyfriend, son, whatever, will love it. Whereas many men, not all, but, but many men will look at that $100 price tag and imagine they could go to Morton's and have a big steak for it. Coming up, Tom and I continue our discussion. Again, thank you to HMH Vices for making this episode possible. If you've been hoping to start tying tube flies this winter, HMH has got you covered. The HMH Universal Tube Fly Kit is an easy-to-use system of interchangeable tubes, tools, and techniques that lets you tie any style of floating or sinking tube fly for both freshwater and saltwater game fish. Plus, the DVD in this package gets you tying tube flies right away. The kit includes an HMH Tube Fly DVD, starter tube fly tool, stainless pins for the tube tool, poly tubes, rigid plastic tubes, micro tubing, hook holder tubing, aluminum and copper tubes, and custom and standard cone heads. If you're looking for everything you need to get started, check out www.hmhvices.com. One of the problems, incidentally, and this touches on it, one of the problems in getting back to your original question about mm-hmm. what's the major challenge facing a publisher, selling books, you know, duh, um, but but also part and parcel of that dilemma, that quandary, 
is that newspapers are going away, and newspapers are definitely going away. But that was so, and, and, I, and I hate to interrupt you, but when I when I meant print is dead, I didn't even stop to contemplate that print in books is dead because I'm ignorantly just thinking about me, and, right. and I personally can never see books going, you know, becoming dead. Right. But I meant in newspaper and magazines. Right. Well, the. Um, Newspapers historically have been a great source of book reviews, and over the last decade or so, the vast majority of of papers, even big papers, have cut out a lot of the book the space that they've devoted to book reviews. So it's more and more difficult for a publisher, again large or small, to get that kind of exposure. So that just puts another obstacle in our way. There have been some bright notes for me, though, uh, when we. When we came out with the Grouse book a couple of years ago, one of the the Minnesota papers, Minnesota, incidentally, the Twin Cities, Minnesota, uh, uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, has the the most literate populace in the United States, and, oh. and they have the highest per capita listeners to national public radio. And so you want to sell books, you go to the, gar- get the land of Garrison Keillor. And I had the great fortune to have a full-page review in the sports section of, of one of the papers. I think it was the uh, St. Paul uh, Star Tribune, 10 days before Christmas. And uh, it was a glowing review. And, of course, the people reading it, the good Lutherans, uh, grouse-hunting Lutherans of the upper Midwest, had no idea where area code 425 was. So my telephone started ringing at 4.30 in the morning. Oh, no. And no, no this, is, this is joy. Yeah, when you, and it didn't stop for 48 hours. And when the dust settled, I had sold 150 copies of a $100 grouse book. People hadn't even seen it. They just, they were, they just heard it was good and it sounded good. And, 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 and you know, I people ordering multiple copies. Oh, my husband will love this. My son will love it. And, and what do you think? And I said, lady, if they don't, you send it back because they're going to love it. Does Amazon affect your business? It does only when I allow it to. Okay. How uh, so? Um, well, if, if you, uh, if a publisher, um, they're the evil empire. Amazon. Yes. To, okay. to a writer in particular and to, to a lesser extent to the to publishers, but excuse the cliche, but they really are the 800-pound gorilla. Uh, they gobble up everything they touch. To put it in simple English that everybody will understand, my book, um, let's say, for example, the Mill Passion for Tarpon book, you won't find it on on Amazon, or actually you will, but you'll find it for some preposterous price of like $400 or something. Some character, wherever, has a copy and throws it on there and tries to sell it. I, I don't know how many of them they sell at that price, but bless them. But just using it as an example, uh, with a $100 cover price, when a publisher gives that book to Amazon through a series of, a labyrinthine series of wholesalers, distributors, all that, all of whom take their little cut, and sometimes a big cut. When the dust settles, the publisher, if the publisher is lucky, six months after a person plunks down the $100 to Amazon to buy the book. Six months later, if the publisher is lucky and the, when the dust settles, the publisher gets maybe a third of that. Mm, so and, what's the writer get? And the writer gets next to nothing. And, and to make matters worse, a third of my $100 books is about what it costs me to manufacture them. So it's not even a question of no profit. It's a question of can you even do it? Can you even do it? And that's why there are very few books that look like mine out on 
the market. And, you know, the reality is that, that we all like a deal, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not sitting here chastising readers. Uh, I buy things on Amazon. I bought, you know, I'm doing my Civil War project a couple of years ago. I, I hate to think of how many thousands of dollars I spent on Amazon. And a lot of that money goes to little bookshops mm-hmm. all across the country and even internationally who happen to have an old copy of something. Yeah. You know, so that's a, a good aspect to it. But the, the, the raw economics of publishing books, uh, especially the kind that I try to publish, uh, big, colorful, lots of pages, heavy, it, it just doesn't work. And so the only defense I have, in my case, is to don't let them get it. If they don't have it, they can't sell it. It's as simple as that. So, right. for example, we're coming out with a, sort of a sequel to the Mill book called the pa- A Passion for Permit. Uh, this November, and people can look to a little blue in the face, but it ain't going to be on Amazon. So are all the Passion Force uh, books, are they going to be a big series that you're going to sell as a collection at the end of it all? Oh, I don't know about a collection. I mean, it's kind of morphed into that. That really wasn't the idea to begin with. Mm-hmm. wasn't the plan, but um, I, I guess it's kind of become that. I think uh, Wild River Press has become known for those titles. It's not We publish books that are called other things, obviously, but I think it, it seems to capture lightning in a bottle pretty well it that's what we do we're passionate for this stuff we're passionate for grouse for tarpon for steelhead and uh, uh i'm i'm just uh fortunate that nobody had grabbed that before i did so how many of these how many books have you published through your company at this point oh boy that should i'm gonna sound pretty stupid here and i don't know exactly the number but so, somewhere around 15 or so, I guess. Okay, and how many have you written? Oh, um, I wrote a silly little book a number of years ago uh, called Till Death or Fly Fishing Do Us Part. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, actually, it, I, uh, I wrote the lead story to it, and then I corralled a few other people to talk about how their fishing has influenced their relationships and vice versa. So I suppose I could take credit for that. I... I also edited that grouse book. That I can't say I wrote that grouse book, but I was the the editor, which means you're basically the you know the orchestra leader or the you know you're hurt, you're hurting cats, and you're really hurting cats if you had, as I did in that case, twenty five contributors. Ooh, no thanks. Yikes! Nope. So, so I've had my hand in, in, of course, a great many of these books, and uh, helped do a lot of the the long form interviews, for example, for the Mill book and the Gallagher Steelhead book. But as far as a, a book that I can claim that I did in its entirety, it's it's my new Civil War book called Gettysburg, 1863, Seething Hell. Uh, I just came out with that this past spring, and we've, we've already won a national award for that and are up for several others. Uh, so it's on quite a different subject. So what about the book you're writing now? A lot of my listeners are hunters, and I think they'll be fascinated to hear what you're up to. Right. Well, I'm just off a... Uh, a month-long kamikaze tour that took me from Texas through Florida, Louisiana, with a pit stop, of course, for oysters, yep. Carolinas, Virginia, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and then finally this past week in Indiana. I interviewed 12 individuals who have the distinction of having killed a wild turkey in all 49 states where they exist. This feat is is quite extraordinary. Um, To the best of my knowledge, only 14 individuals um, have accomplished it, and I interviewed over the last month 12 of them. And they told me all their stories about how they started hunting and and 
uh, how they go about planning these trips and all their shenanigans and you know the relationships they've blown up along the way and you name it some real characters uh, all their stories are going to be collected in a book that I'm now going to spend the next two months putting together called Turkey Men and Turkey Men Turkey Men and it'll be out next next winter in time for the uh, annual National Wild Turkey Federation convention in Nashville in February which attracts by the way upwards of 50,000 men, women, and children all dressed in camo, a sight uh, that I am looking forward to seeing. I'm noticing that a lot of fly fishermen and women are getting into bow hunting, myself included. It's just something that I see a lot of parallels with. Are you finding that? Has it always been like that and I've just never known it? Um, no, no. as a matter of fact, that it's interesting you mention that because that's definitely a subject that's on my radar. Because again, very similar to a lot of the audiences that I've appealed to with my other books, the, those folks are passionate, obsessive, and they spend money. Those are my kind of readers. So yeah, I'm definitely looking at that and have for some time. For example, Andy Mill... And uh, his uh, middle son, Nikki, they are avid elk hunters. I mean, they s- literally scale mountains in Colorado. And, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, Andy killed a, uh, a bull with, a, with his bow and, and you know, in, uh, v- near vertical heights and, and had to pack the meat down over three days. Whoa. Uh, for a mile, yeah. Um, and, uh, and this was after he had blown his knee out and... <laughs> Had a new one, new one put in, but yeah, there definitely is a parallel there. I, I think, um, I think you're onto something. It's uh, uh, in much the same way that that fly fishing in the 1980s was a way that those of us who had grown up bait fishing or lure fishing could kind of um, expand the sport into another dimension with a new set of challenges. I, I think that that bow hunting is, is sort of like that today. What about fishing for yourself? Do you get out anymore? Of course, yeah. Um, I, not as much as I'd like. I've, the last couple of years in particular, I've, I've just invested uh, myself uh, thoroughly um, in, in the Civil War book that, uh, that I just published. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I, I do some trout fishing, not anywhere near as much as I did you know, years back when I was young, but I do get enthused about it. I I, uh, I was trout fishing last September on the uh, South Fork of the Snake River in Idaho. That was an interesting experience. Uh, one of the few places where they're they're actually trying to get the the, the biologists are actually trying to to get uh, anglers to kill rainbows uh, because they want to get them out of the, the spawning mix and and bolster the. Uh, uh, the native Yellowstone cutthroat. Uh, oh, so and, they are they are doing that though. Oh yeah, and it's and they they have electro fishing programs going on spawning tributaries to, to get rid of the rainbows, and uh, it was an interesting experience for me because because I spent most of my life, of course, advocating catch and release, and I remember distinctly as a as a young guy in all those trout unlimited activities in the nineteen seventies. In New England, I remember vividly shouting matches uh, at hearings and various other public meetings where catch and release management had been proposed on different lakes and streams and so on. And the old timers were just vehement against it, and and we were, you know, uh, we were going to ruin fishing. And you know, if you don't kill trout, what's the point of going out for them? And 
on and on and on. And um, and so to see the whole thing come full circle and to see today's generation of educated, well-equipped anglers actually having an aversion to killing any fish at all is is strange and uh, and and a little bit troubling because uh, you know we advocated in all those years ago, decades ago. I I like to think that we advocated catch and release not because we viewed the trout as you know warm fuzzy little critters, but rather it was a management option. It was a, an opportunity to to catch them again and recycle them, or in a wild fishery to uh, help the population recover and put more spawners on the on the gravel but a whole generation really a couple of generations of anglers has grown up with this notion that trout should never be killed or steelhead should never be killed or salmon should never be killed and uh that that does worry me a little bit because we are after all predators you know it's a blood sport and uh i think that occasionally everybody should eat a fish he catches I, I and by no means am I suggesting that you know that we suddenly start killing uh, Dean River steelhead or endangered cutthroat in the Yellowstone River or anything like that. But on the other hand, in situations where fish are plentiful, an example being the South Fork of the Snake, uh, where you'd actually benefit the population by uh, culling some of that, I think today's anglers would would do best to to kill a, a few trout here and there and enjoy them as a meal uh it's part of the part of the celebration of the sport when we were doing the grouse hunting book several years ago and we asked the uh sydney lee the poet laureate of vermont to explain why he kills a grouse and he he said that because in eating it it's a sacramental event yeah and i thought that that summarized it perfectly if somebody wanted to have their book published with you do they send something to you, or do you source out all your authors? Most of the uh, books that I've published, I've um, chased down the authors. I've, I've thought, for example, that a certain subject would make a good book, and I had an idea how I would go about do it and doing it, and then sort of match the author or authors to the project. You know, I'm a very small operation, and uh, I'm always open to to new ideas, especially in the in the realm of hunting. You know, I've done mostly fishing books, as you know, uh, in these last ten years. But the market's very limited, and and appears to be becoming even more limited. So, I'm kind of moving not away from fishing entirely, but uh, toward the larger hunting audience. And so that's that's why, for example, I'm I am interested in this whole archery thing, and yeah. Well, I look forward to following your journey and seeing how the parallels do come into play. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.